Thanks, Ketra. If you could have your Bibles open to First John, that'd be great. And uh, as we come to this text, let's pray that God will speak to us. Lord, we give you thanks that you are speaking, God, and we thank you that your words have power to transform our lives. And Lord, we pray that this time that you will speak to us, that you will make, you will convict us of who you are, uh, that we may live all of our life in, uh, in the light of uh, the truth that has been revealed to us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Uh, if you've ever studied theology, you know that 20th century was a difficult time in, the, uh, in, in theology. It was, many things were being challenged. Um, people started to question the truthfulness of Christian, uh, Christianity's historical claims, for example. Many said that they just couldn't believe in miracles anymore. In response, liberal, uh, uh, not just the miracles, sorry, the, and the historical claims. So when the Bible said this is history, they didn't believe it anymore. In response, liberal theologians um, tried to fix this problem by saying, actually, it's really not about history. It's not about historical claims. It's, that's not what Christianity is important where Christianity is important. The particular historical claims weren't important. What's really important is the common human experience, the thing that we all share, that Christianity uh, points to. So instead of saying God is a supernatural entity, a personal being, uh, celebrity theologian Paul Tillich uh, said that God was this, our instinct for ultimate reality, ultimate reality, and faith is about ultimate concerns. Another, another famous theologian called Rud- Rudolf Bultmann tried to demythalize Christianity. Uh, that makes it sound a bit more like existentialism than Christianity. So since modern people assumed that miracles didn't happen, he said that it's not important uh, that we believe in miracles. What was more important was what the miracles were about. So for example, if you can't believe that Jesus fed the 5,000, with the uh, 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 with the loaves and fish, um, the story really was about sharing. It's about sharing what we have and how, as we share, things multiply and we can we have more than enough um, between us. Resurrection story wasn't really about Jesus rising again from the dead physically, but it was really about what it means to have meaning at the time of loss, um, meaning in the darkest of times. Well. I think Apostle John would have fumed at these supposedly modern and learned developments. Look how he starts this letter in 1 John. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked and our hands have touched, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. History mattered to John. He's not proclaiming that something he learned, a message that he received, some enlightenment he reached after years of meditation, some life-changing thought. He's not proclaiming these thoughts. He was procla- proclaiming not what, what he was. He wasn't proclaiming what Jesus was about. He says he was proclaiming Jesus, the person whom he had touched, whom he had heard and looked and gazed, and. Um, a person who died, lived and died and rose again from the dead. He's making sure that people understand that Christianity is not like Gnosticism, Greek philosophy, which said that really what's important is the spiritual things, not the physical. Having certain knowledge, that's what Gnosticism, uh, Gnosis means knowledge. A certain knowledge gets you um, to understand what, what life is really, what life was really about. John is saying 
John is writing against them as he would uh, against the modern theologians that Christianity has never been just about the spiritual things, about having certain knowledge of the truth, certain enlightenment. It has always been about physical as well as the spiritual because we're made in, God, uh, in, in, in God's image in bodily forms. And God had become incarnate in Jesus Christ in order that we may have relationship with him, to live like him. And the fact that miracles, are, uh, the fact that uh, the reason why miracles are important is not because that miracles point to a message that helps us to live better. But miracles are important because it points to the fact that Jesus is the Son of God who came down and He really is God. That's why the miracles are important. That's why John calls these miracles signs. Signs that point to the reality that Jesus is the Son of God who became incarnate. That's the primary reason behind all the miracles. So John didn't proclaim a message about Jesus. He proclaimed Jesus Christ. He, he, in Christianity, the message and the person are one and the same. Jesus is the message, and we can't have the message without the person of Jesus Christ. And we'll think a little bit uh, more about what that means uh, 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 for us, but... This is good news. This is great news uh, in many respects. But first, it's good news because it, if this happened in history, this really happened, and we can examine it. We can test it even today because it happened. It means we can be confident that the message is true, that there's somebody who really saw and touched and heard Jesus Christ. This is not a made-up story. If you think about this, think about how, how all the other religions started. It can't be tested, many of them, most of them. For example, Islam says it started with a private encounter with Muhammad. Muhammad said that Allah appeared through this angel and he, dict uh, he dictated the Quran uh, to him. How can we test this? How can we really know that that happened? Mormonism started with Joseph Smith, uh, say, uh, Joseph Smith saying that uh, uh, an angel appeared to him. How do we test that? Buddhism and Hinduism are not historical faiths, meaning that their claims don't depend on history. You either adopt and buy into their philosophy or you don't. These are not historically verifiable things, not objectively test, uh, 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 things that you can, be, you can test. But Christianity is different. Jesus really appeared 2,000 years ago. He became a man. He had a public ministry. He had following of disciples. He died and he rose again. There was an empty tomb that the early Christians had to explain. Uh, not just the early Christians, everybody had to explain. He didn't appear to one or two people, but he appeared to many people, up to 500 at, at times. Did you, notice, did you notice how John uses in this uh, text the word we here? That which we have heard, that which we have seen with our eyes, that which we have looked and our, our hands have touched. But most of the disciples who ran away at the time of crucifixion died a martyr's death, saying that they had seen the risen Christ. People like Paul, who vigorously objected to the fact, uh, to, to, uh, uh, to Christianity and persecuted the church, said that his life changed when Jesus, the, the, the uh, resurrected Jesus appeared to him. This is, the fact was that there was an empty tomb in the very beginning and nobody could, ex nobody reproduced Jesus' body and nobody could explain that. The fact is that hallucinations don't happen to 500 people at once. 
The fact is that John's writing, Paul's writing, Mark's writing, Peter's writing are done at a time when people could, could go and check the claims, these claims. You see, John's not preaching what he thinks was a life-changing message for him, some enlightenment that he arrived. He's preaching a man, man that he had seen, and how he changed his life. How, how because Jesus came and died and rose again, everything that he knew about the world was turned upside down, that he lives his life differently because Jesus has revealed himself, something different, something that, that, that uh, his life and death and resurrection revealed to him something that he didn't know before. He saw the risen Christ again. And think about what that means, really. I mean, we just went through uh, Good Friday and Easter Sunday. What that means, we know that there is, as John knows, we know that there is the resurrection from the dead, that the world doesn't end in death. That's what we thought for so many years. world does not end in death because Jesus came back to life. We know that there is forgiveness of sins because Jesus went around saying that he can forgive sins and he will forgive sins. That there is reverse of the curse. That the, there was original design and this world, we see the goodness in it, but we also see the curse. But we know that Jesus will, re- will reverse all the curse. That there is a new kingdom and new creation that will come because Jesus rose again. John was willing to die, as with many other disciples, for this, not because he had this great message, but because he knew that Jesus proved to be the giver of, giver of life at the resurrection. We, he knew and saw, I mean, he saw Jesus bringing the kingdom of God to this earth. That's why he was willing to die for this, for this faith, because he heard him, he touched him, he saw him. And John says, if you don't know this, if you don't know Jesus in history, you don't have fellowship with him, then you really haven't lived. Isn't it interesting that uh, what John calls Jesus in this section? Jesus isn't mentioned by name in this section, right? In, in chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. In the latter part of uh, verse 1, he writes, This we proclaim concerning the word of life, he says. Word of life. In verse 2, he says, the life appeared, and we proclaim the eternal life later on in verse 2. He simply calls Jesus life, eternal life. And Jesus had said this about himself, in fact, in John chapter seventeen three. Now this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Knowing Jesus is life, he says. He also said, remember, after raising Lazarus from death, um, he said, I am the life. I am the resurrection and the life. He is the life. And I'm sure that there is a more profound and mystical meaning to um, that, that statement. But I think it means at least this. That the quality of our lives change, changes dramatically when Christ comes into our life. What we thought was life changes dramatically once we come to know Jesus Christ. The life before Christ, life apart from Christ, is in comparison, not life. It sounds trite, but I can only think of something like this. Imagine you had McDonald's ice cream all of your day, and you just thought that McDonald's ice cream was the most wonderful thing. This is something that you wanted to eat, you want to eat at every meal as dessert, because you love it so much. 
But one day, your best friend buy, uh, uh, buys you Haagen-Dazs ice cream. And you taste its creamy, rich, smooth, milky, sweet, but not so sweet ice cream. And you're just blown away by Haagen-Dazs. And you think to yourself, whatever I had before, that's not ice cream. I should get some royalty or something from Haagen-Dazs for this. Um, <laughs> but what John is saying is that once he has come to know Jesus Christ, he realizes that Jesus doesn't just give you life, that he changes your life so completely that you see life completely differently. He is the giver of life. Knowing Jesus is life, he says. You know, I love our church. I love Shatin Church. And I love the people here. And I was thinking about how to, um, what it is, how, 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 how do we get to the next level as a church together? And I've come to realize that I've been calling you to make all sorts of sacrifices that, sh- that shape like the cross. I mean, I even talked about it last week. I've been talking about how Jesus asks us to pick up our cross and follow him and how then we become, as we become Christian, that there is a cost to following Jesus. But I think, unfortunately, as I was thinking about this, I don't think I have talked about the greatness of the gospel enough, the greatness of Jesus enough, and how our life changes when we come to know the gospel, how in Jesus Christ alone is life. And so many of you do sacrifice energy, time, money in doing various ministries. In doing Kingdom Kids, Revelation Warriors, Salad Rock, Links, um, you come to prayer meetings, whenever you can. But you see, I think the problem with most of us is that still, as we do these things, these things still feel like sacrifices because we're squeezing church and God into our busy lives. And our lives are about many other things. And we're trying to squeeze one more thing into our life. But I want to tell you that, you know, all the things that you live apart from Jesus Christ, the life that you have apart from Jesus is not life. Is not life. This is the only way to live, knowing Jesus, loving Jesus, living for Jesus, making sacrifices for Jesus. This is the only way to live. If we're convicted that this is true, that Jesus really is our Lord, that he died and rose again and he changed the world, that, uh, that, that this is the only way to live. And living for anything else is foolishness. You know, this is how Paul puts it in Philippians chapter 3, 7 through 9. But whatever were gains to me, now I consider loss for sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing uh, worth of knowing Christ Jesus as my Lord, for whose sake I've lost all things. I consider them rubbish that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is from, through faith in Christ." This is a man who had a Haagen-Dazs ice cream. He met Christ, and he's living for him now. And did you see, did you hear the sense of regret and pain as he talks about his past? He regrets every day not living for Jesus Christ. He regrets every day not knowing him. And every day wasted living for something else. Although he had fame, power, and influence, his previous life feels like rubbish. A loss compared to the surpassing knowledge, uh, surpassing greatness of knowing Jesus Christ as his Lord. Living for him is the only way that he wants to live. So he longs to know and live for Christ. His sacrifices doesn't seem like, uh, don't seem like sacrifices at all to him. 
I know that this doesn't mean that all of a sudden, things that we give up for the sake of Christ will seem suddenly, start to seem suddenly amazing. After all, Paul's writing this letter in a prison cell, and I'm sure it wasn't comfortable even there. We're still human beings. But it does mean that knowing Jesus, knowing Jesus means that we have the assurance that our lives, if we live for him, everything that we do for him matters for the eternity. Because Jesus is the Lord, and he is the author of life. It means that our work matters when we work for Christ, who will judge our life and our work. Knowing Jesus means knowing um, that the difficulties of life are temporary, that they will pass, that we can get through the difficulties of life. Knowing Jesus means that we don't have to go through the ups and downs of life by ourselves, by, uh, alone, but rather with Christ, who is still in control. Even as we face, face death, it doesn't sting because we know Christ defeated death and our lives will be found in him again. Paul cannot think of a better way to live, even in prison. And really, that's joy, isn't it? The joy that John says he wants to share at the end of our reading in verse 4. He writes, in order to make our and your joy complete. That joy comes from knowing Jesus Christ. And that joy has the strength to get us through all the trials of this life. And this is how uh, Tolkien puts it in his famous book, Lord of the Rings. Um, Lord, uh, Pippin um, glanced at some, um, in some wonder at the face now close beside his own, for the sound of that laugh had been gay and merry. Yet in the wizard's face he saw at first only lines of care and sorrow, though as he looked more intently he perceived that under all there was a great joy, a fountain of mirth enough to set a kingdom laughing were it to gush forth. There is that line of care and sorrow. That, it, we're human beings. We live in this life. It's tough. But if we know Christ underneath all of that is that joy, a fountain of mirth, enough to set a kingdom laughing. Paul had that, and John had that, and we have that in Jesus Christ. As Christians who've had haagen we should have that. And you might be asking then, why do I not feel like that? Why, is it, why do I not experience that sort of joy? How do, how do we experience this? John, I think, gives us some answer in verse 3. John says in verse 3, he proclaims Jesus Christ so that you may have fellowship with us. And our fellowship is with the Father and with the Son, Jesus Christ. You see what John is saying? First, he says, we need to know Christ. I proclaim to you, Jesus Christ. But then he says, so that you may have fellowship with us, with him with Christians, with the people in the church, with, with other people who know Jesus Christ. This fellowship, this life that we have with, the God, uh, with God and, 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 and the Son through the Holy Spirit is experienced through the fellowship within the church, people who know Jesus Christ. I know many people don't like the idea of church, church or their experience with the church, but You see, John is saying, this is a good thing. Fellowship with us is a good thing. You should come and have fellowship with me. Because this is how you experience the love of God. 
We're big on experience these days. We want more authentic, more real experience. We don't, we're not satisfied with the 2D experience where we wear these glasses. We want 3D. Well, John says the primary way of experiencing fellowship with the Son and the Father is through the fellowship with us, with the church. And I know that some of you do sense this already. I know that the last week we baptized George and um, Carmen, Sylvia, and, and, and Gary, uh, the family there, and, and Annie. Um, and one of the things that they would say about this is they came to the church and they felt at home here. They came to the church and they, they sensed that there is another otherly, otherworldly reality here in our fellowship. It is there. I'm sure 20s and 30s people are feeling it right now as um, they are um, sharing this fellowship with others at St. Andrews. With other Christians, you can share. You can be vulnerable. You can love. There is a sense of that love that marks those relationships, mutual giving and selflessness. It doesn't always happen, but it does happen. I know a friend uh, whose parents are, are not Christians, but... Uh, they want their kids, all of their kids go to church because they've experienced fellowship with other Christians. And they think, well, they don't want to go to church, but they still want the, their kids to go to church. And if you have non-Christian family, you know that there are more things that you share with the people here within the church than you do with others in your family. So the challenge is, what kind of a church are we? Shatin Anglican Church. Is it a church that people go, come in and out? People who come and worship privately and go out, live privately, as if Jesus died to save a bunch of individuals who never talk to each other, who never love um, uh, uh, loves one another. We proclaim to you what we have seen and heard so that you may have fellowship with us, he says. And you might be thinking, well, once again, I know that. I know what I have to do. What I know what I should do, but that's not me. How do I get there? Well, I really don't know other way than um, this. I mean, this is why John wrote this gospel, right? This is why he wrote this epistle, this letter. Because we are forgetful people, and we need constant reminders that things, uh, things are of primary importance. We need reminder. Reminders constantly that Jesus really is real. That he really died and he really rose again. And how because he died and he rose again, he changed the whole world. We need that reminder. We need to be convicted of that fact. But then we also need the reminder that we should act on that. Act on that conviction. Once again, the mark of a true Christian is not inward faith or outward even profession of faith with our mouths, but that conviction of truth that is expressed in love. Our conviction of truth needs to be expressed in love. And that's what this whole letter is about. This is why we're going to go through First John, because we want to be convicted of the truthfulness of the gospel, but we also want to be a church that acts on it. Christianity is about incarnate love of Christ. God doesn't di- God didn't just say I love you from a- a heaven above. He came down as a person. He really lived and he really died loving us. He really rose again. And that love needs to be made incarnate in our love for each other. If the world is to know God's love, it needs to be loved by us. If people who um 
If non-Christians are to know the love of Christ, they need to be loved by us. And when we do this, when we start taking the risk, and it is a risk, because as you love one another, you will also hurt. You will also be hurt. But as we take the risk of loving each other, prioritizing other people's needs over ours, making sacrifices that are shaped like the cross, we will taste that joy of living together, joy of being served by each other, being vulnerable with each other, being forgiven by each other, being built up together. And we will taste that kingdom, kingdom that Jesus has brought over to this earth when it is being made real in this church and the churches all around. That kingdom is breaking in. We know that in our heads. Let's make that into a reality. Let's pray.